A few years ago, a colleague at the museum pulled me aside and said, you have to do a story on the missing penis. We were showing a major exhibition of Egyptian art, and visitors were starting to ask, what's the deal with the drawing of the god Osiris? Lying on his back with a series of wavy lines where his private should be, like magical powers or some unfortunate aroma. It's a good question, actually. Even by the standards of myth, Osiris's penis went through some epic travails. One day it was there, along with the rest of Osiris's godly self, as he ruled over Egypt. The next, it was gone. Osiris was murdered by his brother and literally dismembered, chopped into 14 pieces and scattered across the country. His wife, Isis, who was also his sister, retrieved all of the pieces except one, his penis. It had been eaten by fish in the Nile. Isis was like, fine, I'm a goddess. I'll make a phallus myself. And she did. And she put it on the resurrected body of Osiris, and it worked for them, well enough to conceive Horus, the falcon-headed heir to the kingdom. So, whenever Osiris was shown in sculptures or carvings, lying on his back post-reconstruction, the phallus was always shown, a little nub sticking up right where you'd expect. In time, though, Osiris's phallus would disappear again, along with the phalli of other gods and people represented in ancient temples throughout Egypt. Sometimes their noses, too, and their hands, their feet. So that when European explorers came across these temples in the 1800s and early 1900s, they found sculptures everywhere, missing body parts. They assumed at first, just as people do today, that this is simply what happens if you leave something out in the elements for hundreds or thousands of years. Whether it's from ancient Egypt or ancient Greece or ancient Rome, things fall apart. Especially things that are, well, sticking out. But the answer, like the past itself, is almost never that simple. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, the first episode of Season 5, A story about what we've lost and why. How we choose to see the past and what that says about us right here, right now. I'm Tim Gehring. I remember when I first heard about the seven wonders of the world. 
all these cool things, right? The Colossus of Rhodes, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, the Statue of Zeus. I couldn't wait to go see them when I grew up. And then at some point I realized, wait, none of these things still exist except the Pyramid at Giza? All that's left is a pile of rocks? What the hell? Let's go back 2,000 years to ancient Rome. It's easy to assume that the reason we don't have many intact cultural treasures from the classical world is that there wasn't much to begin with. There were just seven wonders, after all. But here we are in ancient Rome, and there are marble statues everywhere. In fact, there's just about one marble statue for each Roman in a city-state with a million people. That's a lot of art. Now let's cross over to ancient Greece. Here, too, there are statues everywhere. The famous Greek bronzes. In the second century, the travel writer Pausanias visits Olympia and counts 69 bronze statues of Olympic winners, made seven centuries earlier. The historian Pliny the Elder reports 3,000 bronze statues at Olympia, and just as many at Rhodes, Athens, and Delphi. That's also a lot of art. And yet, of the 69 Olympic statues, all that survived are 13 bases. And of all the rest of those thousands of bronzes, fewer than 30 substantially intact statues have ever been found. Classical art, as one writer recently put it, is a heritage of loss. Those seven wonders of the world, most of them were destroyed by natural causes, earthquakes and fires. But much of the rest of the ancient world wasn't lost, per se. It was repurposed, on purpose. The Greek bronzes were melted down for weapons and armor. Marble sculptures were melted down for lime and building materials. There's a story about the so-called Farnese Hercules, which the Romans had sculpted in marble after a lost Greek bronze. Eventually, it too was repurposed. Its head was found in a well, its torso in a bath, its legs 10 miles away. This goes on for centuries, right? Generation after generation. The old stuff being broken up and used for scrap. Until, in 1748, the ruins of Pompeii are rediscovered in Italy. With its somewhat intact buildings and streets and heartbreaking impressions in the dust of people killed in the explosion of Vesuvius, the city of the dead becomes a romantic icon, right? Artists flock to Italy and begin to paint ancient ruins, mostly imagined, into all kinds of pastoral scenes. The ruins are picturesque, literally, but also a reflection on transience, death, and decay. They prompt some romantics, ironically, to start building their own new ruins. Goethe, the German writer, creates a mock ruin in Weimar. 
In England, the trend for fake ruins really takes off. Temples and statues scattered about the gardens of grand homes. New buildings meant to look old, the architectural equivalent of pre-washed jeans. The heritage of loss becomes a fetish. The more broken the past, in a sense, the better. You've heard of the Venus de Milo, right? The sculpture of a woman now at the Louvre Museum in Paris. One of the most famous artworks in the world. The ultimate symbol of beauty, missing both arms. When it's rediscovered in the spring of 1820, on the island of Milos in the Aegean Sea, it's even more broken up. The farmer who finds it comes across the upper torso in one place, the lower body in another, and part of the right hip. Of course, no arms. A French sailor poking around Milos for antiquities hears about it. This is less than 20 years after Lord Elgin had many of the marble sculptures pried off the Parthenon in Athens and taken to England. It's less than five years after Napoleon's defeat, when, among other things, France had to return two famous sculptures taken from Italy, the Apollo Belvedere and the Venus de Medici. France is jealous and humiliated, desperately searching for other ancient treasures to take so they can declare themselves the true heirs to the great classical era of learning and democracy. The sailor on Milos becomes convinced that this smashed-up sculpture is a masterpiece of classical art, and he calls on his superiors to buy it before anyone else does. Finally, they do, just as it's being loaded by the Ottoman Turks on a ship bound for Constantinople. The French even get a few more pieces that the farmer had found later. A hand holding an apple, the chignon holding her hair back, part of an upper arm, parts of the base. In transit to Paris, the sculpture breaks even more. Worse, there's a rather inconvenient inscription that's discovered on part of the base, which says the statue was carved in Antioch, a city that wasn't even founded until a hundred years after the end of the Classical Age in Greece. Well, the director of the Louvre decides the sculpture doesn't really need that part of the base for display. And eventually the base disappears, never to be found. The Venus de Milo never is fully restored, right? The hand holding the apple suggests the sculpture is indeed an image of Venus, who was awarded the apple in the Judgment of Paris. The island of Milos itself is shaped like an apple. But the museum decides to leave off the hand and the other bits and pieces, because another ancient statue of Mars is thought to be paired with it and cannot be restored. Or something like that. And so, one broken statue begets another, and another, and another. There are ancient statues at the Minneapolis Institute of Art now that are missing every appendage you can think of. There's a Greco-Roman sculpture of a man with 
No arms, no legs, no head. Even the penis is broken off. It's just a torso, a six-pack with shoulders. There's also the so-called Tiber Muse, a statue found in 1885 near the Tiber River in Rome that's missing its head and most of its arms. All that's left is a pair of legs and breasts, loosely draped with a dress. Maybe it's Greek. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a musician. Maybe it's Venus herself. Without any limbs holding something, playing something, touching something, broken sculptures like this are mostly symbolic, saying more perhaps about who purchased them and who's looking at them than anything about the ancient world itself. Of course, there are other reasons why the past has come to us as a broken world. In the 1920s, in the aftermath of the Boxer Rebellion in China, some of the great temple caves were systematically looted. Row after row of statuary and friezes chiseled out of the cave walls, often sent to Japan and sold into the international art market. Sometimes looters would separate the head from the body to make two artworks for sale out of one or to make things easier to ship. Which is one reason why there are so many headless bodies and so many disembodied heads. In the late 1930s, the Minneapolis Institute of Art acquired a massive head of Buddha. The crown, the museum announced in 1938, of an enormous figure that likely once stood in a cave, part of a temple carved into the rock. It didn't matter to a Western audience that the Buddha is out of context, missing everything but the head. To some visitors, the museum said, this sculpture, because of its passivity, may seem of little interest. To many others, however, it is an object of great beauty. To them, its dignity, aloofness, and quiet strength speak inwardly and symbolize the timeless greatness of Chinese art. In 2013, some researchers at the University of Chicago realized that one of the largest complex of temple caves in China had been photographed in the 1920s, before it was looted, and they could use the tools of digital imaging to match objects, museum collections, to what had been left behind. Not only recreating the temples, but putting the onus on museums to think about what they have and where it came from. A broken world that only makes sense if you don't think it can ever be repaired. Maybe you heard about the statues taken from Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge conflicts, broken off at the ankle, leaving all these feet behind. The comedian Kamal Nanjiani had a bit about this in a recent sketch on John Oliver's show called The Payback Museum. Now we've got something really special. I'm thrilled to announce the grand opening of our brand new state-of-the-art Asia wing, where we are beyond proud to display a number of priceless 10th century religious statues. Or at least we were. 
Now we only have their feet. They were broken off fairly recently, in the 1980s, 90s, early 2000s. Some of them could be reunited. Other things, of course, can't be repaired. Power shifts, meanings are lost, values change. All those South American gold and silver objects turned over to Spain and melted down. Perhaps some 25,000 tons of silver alone. All those pagan Roman statues, maybe hundreds of thousands, turn to lime after Rome goes Christian. All those Chinese artworks destroyed in the Cultural Revolution. There were some 6,800 officially designated historical interest sites in Beijing alone before Mao. In just a few years, nearly all of them were destroyed. And then, there's Egypt. Let's go back to that exhibition of Egyptian art at Mia a few years ago, with its mysterious missing phallus. The drawings in the exhibition, of Isis in the form of a bird alighting on the reborn body of Osiris, were made just a few decades ago by a French illustrator. They're based on carvings in the Egyptian temple complex of Dendera, which was built between 125 BCE and 60 CE, during the time of Greek rule in Egypt. Dendera is now one of the best-preserved monuments in the country, which is not to say it's intact. Scarves from chisels are everywhere among the wall reliefs, obliterating the faces, hands, feet, and other body parts of gods and people, including their penises. When the French illustrator drew these scenes of Isis and Osiris, he copied the damage, too, as a series of wavy lines where the penis would have been. The vandals were likely Coptic Christians who may well have moved into the temple complex sometime after the old Egyptian religion declined in the 400s and before the temple was completely buried by sand, as it was when excavation began in 1898. The Christian monks didn't understand the gods they were living among. Even the last generation of Egyptian priests, by the end of the old era, probably no longer understood the ancient hieroglyphs. But... The monks didn't need to comprehend the carvings to know what to do with them. God had commanded in the old Hebrew text, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Massive temples like the one at Dendera were still prominent features of the desert in the early days of Christianity. The quote, souls of the landscape, as one researcher put it, best to put a stake through them. It may seem a dull day's work to stand atop a ladder in a darkened chamber 1,500 years ago, hammering away at phalli. But the chiseling was probably a kind of invigorating ritual performance, complete with spells and sermons. If you believe, as 
the early Christians did, that these images are inhabited by demons. To destroy them is a kind of spiritual warfare. That said, in some temples, phalluses appear to have been systematically carved out instead of destroyed, as if to harvest them, likely as aphrodisiacs. At the end of the old religion, when the temples were in decline but still visited by the faithful, people may have helped themselves to the carvings. In some places, they took every godly phallus they could find, along with the phalli of mortal men and even clothing that could have been mistaken for a phallus. Researchers call the damage fertility gouges, or pilgrim's gouges. It was castration, in effect, adding insult to Osiris's injury. Of course, the damage calls even more attention to the god and his magical powers. If only the early Christians had known the myth of Osiris's peripatetic penis, that people would still be talking about it a thousand years later on a continent they didn't know existed, they might have left well enough alone. We've come to think about abused sculptures and other broken artwork as somehow representative of the ancient world, right? Making the past seem even more inscrutable, more disconnected to our own time than it is. But there is another way to think about these scraps of the past. I used to serve on a public arts commission, and every year we'd have to budget tens of thousands of dollars to repair public artwork that was shot up, peed on, run into with cars. And that's just in one mid-sized city in America. Every year, all around the world, art is stolen, blown up, bulldozed, and a lot of it wasn't made to last in the first place. We are so myopic, so violent, so desperate, that perhaps we should be surprised not that so much has been lost, but that anything has survived. Perhaps we should think about these broken bits and pieces not as avatars of decay, but hope. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art and made possible with support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Gearing. New episodes are coming every month now. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening.